0: Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called America's Next President, Beware of the Battered Wife Syndrome. It's based upon the lectionary for Sunday, November 9, 2008. The Luck the luck of the Lectionary this week features Joshua and a story about the transition of political power in Israel. It's a remarkably salient text as America votes for its next president. What might we expect from a new president? What might we hope? With record low approval ratings for Bush, 28%, and Congress, 15%, and only 9% of the country saying that America is headed in the right direction, expectations are very high. The Bloody Book of Joshua begins with the death of Moses and the ascension of his aide-de-camp. The first half of the book is a triumphalistic history of military conquest. The second half details the division of the conquered lands. <coughs> among the 12 tribes of Israel. <coughs> the story ends with Joshua's death in a plea for political sanity. Fear the Lord <coughs> <coughs> and serve him with all faithfulness. Choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. As for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. Joshua 24:14 in 15. That plea for political sanity fell on deaf ears. The people were enthusiastic, but Joshua was dubious. Moses had led Israel in Exodus out of Egyptian bondage, whereas under Joshua, (coughs) the oppressed became the new oppressor. His genocidal campaigns, quote, left no survivors. He totally destroyed all who breathed. Joshua 10 verse 40 Cities were burned. Vanquished kings were publicly hanged. Wealth was plundered. People were enslaved. Extermination without mercy. Joshua 11 verse 20 was the stated goal. In divine approval was the putative rationale. So, instead of political sanity, the reign of Joshua was followed by catastrophe, the period of the judges. In a single generation after the death of Joshua, Israel descended into 400 years of anarchy, where, in the words of the very last sentence of the book of Judges, every person did what was right in his own eyes. Israel's genocides had unleashed the dark forces of its own destruction. In its religious life, according to 1 Samuel 3.1, the word of the Lord was rare. In contrast, idolatry was rampant. Debauchery characterized civic morality. Judges chapter 19, for example, records the murder of a nameless woman (coughs) who was gang-raped all night and then dismembered, a crime so heinous that it subsequently provoked a civil war within Israel. The narrator exclaims in Judges 19.30, Think about it. Consider it. Tell us what to do. On the economic front, there were famines, and it would take long centuries before King David finally united the country. (coughs) What awaits America in its own presidential transition? The country is overwhelmingly united in its discouragement and cynicism, and bitterly divided down the middle, Bipartisan partisan ideologies of the left and right. In a new book called The Limits of Power, The End of American Exceptionalism, Andrew Bacevich advises us to look beyond and beneath the propaganda of both Republicans and Democrats. I discovered Andrew Bacevich by reading his book The New American Militarism from 2005, It's a book in which he describes how America's normalization and even romantization of war pervades our national consciousness and perverts our national policies. A veteran of Vietnam and subsequently a career officer, a graduate of West Point and later Princeton, where he earned a PhD in history, director of Boston's University Center for International Relations, Bacevich has described himself as a cultural conservative who views mainstream liberalism with skepticism, but who also is a person whose disenchantment with what passes for mainstream conservatism, embodied in the Bush administration in what he calls its groupies, is just about absolute. Bacevich has also described himself as a conservative Catholic. Bacevich's new book, The Limits of Power, is a white hot polemic that describes just how badly broken America is today. His prophetic ire finds some vindication in that the book was published only a few months before Wall Street imploded. You might argue that he doesn't say much that's new, but you would be hard-pressed to find someone who says it with such passion, erudition, eloquence, and sometimes even sarcasm. The end of the Cold War was thought to have ushered in a long peace, with the sole superpower arrogating itself to the task of reshaping the world in its own image. In reality, says Bacevich, in the aftermath of 9-11, the Bush administration initiated a long war against global terrorism that is now a permanent condition. This is a war, says Basevich, of no exits and no deadlines. This long war in general, and the Iraq war in particular, have laid bare deep contradictions and dysfunctions in America. The root of America's crisis, he says, rests in a facile notion of freedom. For most citizens, (coughs) freedom means the sacred right to consume. But this misguided, unexamined, and sacred tenet has led to what he calls three interlocking crises one, economic and cultural, two, political and number three, Military. After a brief introduction, he devotes one chapter to each of these three crises. The cultural economic crisis expresses itself in wholesale profligacy, a relentless personal quest to acquire, to consume, to indulge, and to shed whatever constraints might interfere with those endeavors. Our profound addiction to cheap oil, easy personal credit, massive trade imbalances between what we export and import, and the runaway federal debt characterize this profound profligacy. In politics, we've witnessed the concentration of power in the executive branch, the deterioration of meaningful checks and balances, a feckless and dysfunctional Congress, and appalling incompetence in overall government. Aggravating this political crisis is an overall national security ideology, he says, which specializes in disinformational and marginalizing dissent. According to Basevich, Bush is not to blame. He merely inherited and expanded this tendency and it's a tendency that successive presidents will surely follow. In his analysis of our military crisis, Bacevich details our illusions about warmongering and the lessons both real and imagined that we ought to learn from Afghanistan and Iraq, where, in his mind, we are playing, playing a losing hand. Will our new president and Congress make a difference? Can we wipe the slate clean and put the nation back on track? Bacevich dismisses this as what he calls, quote, the grandest delusion of all, end quote. For it turns a blind eye to decades of dysfunction, whether under Reagan and Bush or Carter and Clinton. Rearranging the deck chairs will not solve America's problems. We would do far better to rearrange our high expectations. There is something touching about these expectations, says Basevich at the end of his book, but also something pathetic, like the battered wife who expects that this time her husband will actually keep his oft-repeated vow never again to raise his hand against her. The abused wife, <coughs> of course, is codependent, and only when she assumes control of her own life will conditions change. Something of the same can be said of the American people. Whether the new president you that you voted for who won or lost, all Christians everywhere can join together in one prayer. Dear Lord, Andrew Basevich may be right in his analysis, but may he be wrong in his dire conclusion that significant change for a better America is impossible. And now for further reflection, I'd like to suggest four authors who've been helpful to me on the subject. First of all, Greg Boyd, The Myth of a Christian Nation, How the Quest for Political Power is Destroying the Church. Secondly, Chalmers Johnson, a professor at University of California, San Diego, in three books. The first book is called Blowback, The Costs and Consequences of American Empire, His second book is called Nemesis, The Last Days of the American Republic, and his third book in the trilogy, The Sorrows of Empire. The third author is David Quo, an evangelical Christian. The title of his book is Tempting Faith, an inside story of political seduction. And finally, John Meacham, also a Christian, and also Managing Editor of Newsweek Magazine. The title of his book is American Gospel, God, the Founding Fathers, and the Making of a Nation. For books this week, I review Kathleen Norris, Asadia and Me, A Marriage, Monks, and a Writer's Life, New York Riverhead Books, 2008, three hundred thirty-six pages. It's been fifteen years since Kathleen Norris captured the spiritual imagination of readers with memoirs about leaving New York City for Lemon, South Dakota, and drinking deep at the well of monastic spirituality. See her books Dakota, A Spiritual Geography, 1993, and Cloister Walk, from 1996. Having passed her 60th birthday, her newest book reflects a maturing vision of what authentic Christian identity might look like for the contemporary Pilgrim. Partly a story of love and lament for her her husband David, who died of cancer in 2003 at the age of 57. Part historical and theological inquiry in part psychological analysis, Norris weaves these themes around a singular plot about what the early desert monastics called the noonday demon of Asadia. The Greek word Asadia has a semantic range that is broad, complex, and elastic. Translators pile up the synonyms torpor, malaise, ennui, listlessness, apathy, and even sloth. Asadia figures prominently in the lives and literature of the early monastics who fled the chaos and clamor of the cities only to discover a cacophony of voices in the human heart. Norris relates how she too has battled Asadia since her teenage years, although she did not always know what it was. Trying to identify with precision just what this ancient and arcane experience really is, proves elusive. Is Asadia an external attack by the devil? Interior bad thoughts? Is it a temptation you can resist? How do personality types, your inherited neurobiology, family of origin, and the insights of developmental psychology on age and stage inform the analysis. Most important of all is the similarity between Asadia and what today we would call clinical depression. Is Asadia a spiritual sin or a medical sickness? Maybe, somehow, both at the same time? Is this a matter of do not, will not, or cannot. Norris is acutely aware of this dangerous territory. She knows that in our contemporary culture, to distinguish between asadia and depression can make one suspicious of being in denial, or worse, of judging people who are ill as being morally deficient. She admits that teasing out distinctions is murky, and she wants to avoid what she calls the false assurances of either-or thinking. <coughs> but she draws upon her own experiences and the reflections of writers like Evagrius, Kierkegaard, Dante, and contemporary psychiatrists to maintain that whatever their many similarities, Asadia and depression are not the same. Readers can judge for themselves whether Norris succeeds in her task. At times, I thought of the joke that when all you have is a hammer, every problem looks like a nail. For example, her final chapter is called "Asadia," a Commonplace Book, pages 289 to 329. It simply quotes without comment about 125 authors across 4,000 years who speak broadly about her theme. A related problem is that the subject dies the death of a thousand qualifications, resulting in a distinction without a clear difference. Norris herself is a wise spiritual pilgrim but an unintended consequence of her book might be that it encourages popular self-analysis of a very complicated phenomenon by sufferers who are far less adept than she is and who ought to seek professional help, whether spiritual, medical, or both. Let the scholars howl, says Norris. She knows her own story she knows the early monastics and modern studies, and she's done her homework. She points us toward genuine human wholeness, to greater self-knowledge and less self-consciousness, and to the deep longing of Sarah Pond of Thumias from the 4th century. Lord, we entreat you, make us truly alive. Kathleen Norris's new book, Asadia and Me might be her most controversial book. It also might be her best one. As I write, it's number 15 on the New York Times nonfiction bestseller list. Kathleen Norris, Asadia and Me. <clears throat> For film this week, I review Atonement. From 2007. This film opens in 1935 at a spectacular estate in the English countryside. It takes us to the bloody beaches of Dunkirk, and then it ends in a television studio 60 years later. The well to do Cecilia falls in love with Robbie. Robbie is the son of the housekeeper. Thanks to Cecilia's father, Robbie attended Cambridge and has plans for medical school. Cecilia's younger sister, Briony, also has a crush on Robbie. So when she watches a scene at the estate fountain, when she reads a love note never meant for anyone's eyes, and when she interrupts an embrace in the library that would shock any 13-year-old, she reacts in fear She tells a lie about a family tragedy, the consequences of which are catastrophic for everyone, especially for her own mind and soul. And so, Briony spends her entire life seeking atonement. And at the end of the film, we're not sure that she has convinced herself, much less the audience. Atonement earned seven Academy Award nominations. And finally, for poetry this week, with America's presidential election, we've posted Credo by Daniel Berrigan. Daniel Berrigan was born in 1921. I can only tell you what I believe. I believe I cannot be saved by foreign policies. I cannot be saved by the sexual revolution. I cannot be saved by the gross national product. I cannot be saved by nuclear deterrence. I cannot be saved by aldermen, priests, artists plumbers, city planners, social engineers, nor by the Vatican, (coughs) nor by the World Buddhist Association, nor by Hitler, nor by Joan of Arc, nor by angels and archangels, nor by powers and dominions. I can be saved only by Jesus Christ. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, November the 9th, 2008. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.